Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. So this is a tough week for a lot of people that care about the immigrant issue. Um, normally at this point I would just be talking about a guest and I would be talking about um, what makes our guest so great and today our guest is great, but I do have to talk about what just happened in Mississippi and with the separation of uh, nearly 680 people being detained by ICE. I think regardless of where your politics lie, what is important is doing what we can and what is within our power to uplift those communities that have been, um, that have had their power taken away from them. And it is super unfortunate and also it it saddens my heart and it saddens a lot of uh, you listeners as well. So uh, what I encourage is for all of you to keep your head up as well as uh, donate money to those that can help, like the ACLU of Mississippi, um, and also the El Pueblo Mississippi MacArthur Justice Center, Mississippi Center for Justice, those guys. I think that a good place to start is a website called actblue.com backslash donate backslash ms-raids. I know that's a long website, but I will put that in the summary for today's episode so that you can contribute to those that can help and that will be paying it forward. Again, that website, actblue.com backslash donate backslash ms dash raids. I'll put it in the summary for today's episode. So for today's guest on the 29th episode in season four, we talked to Ksenia Samarskaya. She's the founder of the design agency Summersky and Partners. We first met at the TDC's Type Drives Culture Conference. I thought she gave a really amazing presentation there. And she's worked with some amazing clients like Adidas, Adobe, Airbnb, Michael Kors, Google, and uh, Snoop Dogg Marketing, which I thought was awesome. And she used to work at Apple. Also, the Type Foundry, Hoffler, and Furrier Jones. We talk about her work and her life coming from Russia and escaping Russia after the fall of communism with her mother and her grandmother, and then also how she landed in the States in the Pacific Northwest. I thought she had a really great story to tell, especially one that's very resonant for right now. Also, we get to talk about the abs on the Oregon University duck mascot, so that's pretty amazing. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Ksenia Samarskaya. Want to just uh, you can also put some of the put the cans on if you're a headphones person. I don't know what kind of person I should be. Ksenia, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for dropping by. Thank you for having me. The way that we begin with all of our guests mm-hmm. is uh, uh, everyone comes on and says a little bit about uh, where they're from and who they are and a little bit about their upbringing, and then we start from there. So I would love for you to just kick it off. Let's uh, begin again and again. Um, well, I was born in Russia. Uh, I was Soviet Union at the time. It was Leningrad at the time. All the, all the naming switched over, and we left um, in 1989 as soon as communism collapsed and as wow. soon as anyone was able to How big leave was the your country. Um, traveling, it was just me, my mom, and my grandma. So it's just the three generations, all women, and. Wow. Went through Italy, uh, lived in Italy for almost a year. So, when when you were living in in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. what was the what was the vibe, and what what are your? I would love to hear, because you're the first one who, on on this podcast, who who's had that particular narrative, mm-hmm. and so I would love to hear some memories of that time in your life. I mean, it's it's always been hard to compare places because they were at such different ages and eras of my life sure um we lived we had an apartment right in the center of st petersburg uh we had a dacha uh, our summer house uh that we would be up on the border of finland which is where i would spend the summers um i love that divide i love that that was kind of standard there no matter what your financial income, whatever else, like it was pretty standard to have both a city place and a country place. Yeah. Um, which I think is a wonderful contrast and way to live. Yeah. Um, what was the familial emotion when, when the wall came down? Well, I think, I mean, what it, the wall came down late 89. I think we were right. all already in Italy then. 
Oh, really? So, yeah, because we left at the start of 89, which was as soon as there was even like kind of the slight opening of anyone being able to leave. Um, people had no idea because there'd been like small windows of time where people could get out of Russia before, but they would close and then it'd be 15 years longer wow. that no one could even travel out. What are the circumstances of, of being able to get out at that time? Um, you could only leave as a refugee. So you have to, um, you have to show that you're being persecuted or you're kind of a minority class. And then, um, to, to the, the country that you're entering or, or also to Russia. Oh God, this is, um, ch childhood view of this. Um, it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, I know like to leave Russia, my mom wouldn't even tell me. Wow. Cause you like, I found out the day before we were leaving. Um, cause you don't want the information to get out because just in case you're not able to leave, anything happens. Um, if you s end up staying, you, and people know that you tried to leave, you can never get a job. You can't, you can't have a livelihood. Yeah. Um, so you do kind of like bucket and have to get out in, in that go. Do, do you remember, do you remember what you packed or what your emotional... Like, what, what, what could you physically carry? I'm so curious. <laughs> this, is a oh, it, this is fascinating. Well, well, we can get into all of this. Um, these are not stories I've told a lot of people, so this is uh, fascinating that I am doing this here wow. with a microphone in my face right now. Um, well, I, I appreciate you for being willing to, to sit down and open up about it. It's, it's yeah. It's a special um, thing. So, yeah, so I found uh, my mom only told me, like, the day before. Uh, she handed me a little black bag, possibly still have at her house. Some, it's like this little bag and I could choose a couple toys to take with me. Um, and then at the airport, the security opened up all the toys and invest, wanted to make sure we weren't sneaking anything out. So all my toys got like Jumbled taken around. apart and, um, patted down and whatever else. And then, um... My mom had a couple of her closest friends over and their kids to say goodbye. Um, I didn't get to say bye to most of my friends, but there was a couple people over and I remember they were really upset and I remember comforting them in that moment. Cause the, also back then, like this is pre-internet, this is phone calls are expensive, um, mail, the government would go through your mail. Yeah. So even, the mail's not guaranteed to necessarily get through and you don't, the travel back and forth isn't really allowed. So the assumption, at least for me back then, was that you're saying bye for the last time and you're never seeing oh my these God. people again. I can't even imagine that. Do you remember your emotional state? I remember that I was comforting my friends. I remember that they were upset. Like I remember my friends crying and they're, we're never gonna see again. And for me, like it was one of those things when you don't have a choice about something yeah. and it's happening and you don't even have time to wrap your hand around it yeah. or kind of approach it that you, there's no luxury for ruminating or something or having emotions or opinions or like, okay, this is what has to happen. and. This is what's happening and yeah. you just kind of go with it. So the way, so the way you could leave at the time is, um, so you have to say that you're being persecuted. So that's either if you're a political refugee or if you're Jewish. Okay. Cause if you're Jewish, um, back then it was something that it's stamped in your passport. There are certain jobs or universities or schools you can't go to like it was kind of this other thing yeah um with limitations and because the country was about to it had started going through the collapse and whatever else and my mom wasn't sure how bad it was gonna get and whenever it gets bad it gets taken out on whatever minority is available and handy so right. um people had no idea what was gonna come um so yeah, so the route that a lot of people had started taking then is you say that you're going to Israel because Israel accepts Jews and you people ha would get go through, have a layover in Austria 
And basically, as soon as the plane touches down in Austria, you go to the Austrian embassy and you ask for asylum. Wow. Um, so we... Did all of that. With, yeah, some group of people, we did that. So we were in Austria for a week. And then Italy was allowing refugees to... Russian Jewish refugees to stay there and had a couple kind of buildings, communities, refugee camp yeah. things. Um, did, so, did you form any bonds with that refugee community that you left with, or or was it was were the was the group changing all the time? It was changing. I don't remember who was in Austria. That was brief. That was just a week. Um, in Italy, we were in the center of Rome. Uh, gotcha. There was a building that was kind of that people would rent illegally to people like us. Sure. Um, and it was multiple families per apartment. Wow. Uh, so it was us and two other. So it was, I think, like maybe a two bedroom. So there was three families in there. And I think we were in had the living room and then a family per bedroom kind of thing. And but you don't know how long you're staying there. And so my mom. So we were staying there. At, and meanwhile, we just kept applying for asylum to counselor after counselor. Yeah. And my mom, like, we didn't actually necessarily care where my mom were was. Were Yeah, was kind of worried about going to Israel. But otherwise, we were, we'd be fine staying in Italy. We'd be fine staying wherever in Europe. Um, so, yeah, so she kept applying and asking to get in um, U.S., Canada, wherever. Uh, but we kept getting rejected. Um, so that's why we ended up there for almost a year. Other families tended to not, tended to get in, have an easier passage and right. be allowed in. So there are several families that went through the other apartments that we lived in. And wow. that was kind of mostly, because there was like, there's no going to school. There was no anything. I think like maybe for a, a week at some point I went to a camp, but otherwise... How long was um, this time in your life? Like almost a year. Really? Did you uh, feel safe? Like, or did you feel that you're, you were, because of your mother and your grandmother, did you feel comforted by, by all of that? Like, what, where, where, where are you in terms of the feeling okay? There was, again, like, there wasn't a lot that I was comparing it to. So sure. that was just the experience. And I don't know if that's, like, also pre-media or pre-social media or even... Like, I don't think we had a television there or anything. So it's right. like you're only, all you know is your own reality yeah. and your own experience. So it's like, okay, this is the experience. Um, so it was a lot of just kind of hanging out by myself. It was, uh, my grandma would hang out and teach me math. And uh, I'd hang out in the courtyard or kind of around the building, go see some of the sites uh and Rome, and uh, I do remember like not a for, bad place to hang out. <laughs> it's not the worst, definitely. <laughs> yeah. If you're gonna be um, visually speaking, if you're gonna, you're gonna be, be somewhere. Um, exactly. And I do, but I do remember for a while there was an elderly couple that lived uh, in one of the bedrooms, and me and uh, I would go and play cards there a lot. And we would hang out because <laughs> my mom funny. would be out during the days trying to earn money somewhere right. and trying to kind of make stuff happen. So, what did your mom do? Uh, my mom's a mathematician. That's what she was in Russia. Wow. And then... Uh, I'm from a smart family. <laughs> <laughs> a smart, adventurous, like, risk-taking family. That's really cool. My mom's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then when she moved out here, pure math isn't quite the same kind of industry here. So um, she ended up going to computer programming because early 90s. And yeah. that was something you could do without necessarily all the language and... When you find when your family settled down, I, what what was your what was your path into a, a creative life or like what was what what were your entry points there and like when did you start to like you know lock into a community as well as uh, you know your, your next step in life? Um, I mean communities happened much later, but the art, the creative stuff actually happened much earlier. Gotcha. And uh, um. By that point, I already knew that that was what I was going to do. And I never, I don't remember ever questioning it. Oh, really? I remember it was kind of like, and I think maybe that's also a little bit of Russian culture that you do, you kind of get tested and locked into certain things. 
early on. Um, art was something that I was always told I was talented at. Uh, in Russia, before we left, I had tested in at like, I don't know, age four or five or something ridiculous, uh, tested into the art academy that you have to test in and normally it takes yeah. six-year-olds or something. Oh, wow. Um, so it was just one of those things that I was like, all right, this is this is what I'm good at. Right. This Your is what I'm going to do. And, yeah. um, and I always like the, the myth and the lifestyle myth of the artist. Uh, so that was always, always kind of the path. Yeah. Wow. When, when did you, uh, when did you start actively pursuing that from an academic standpoint? Also, well, like I said, like, yeah, so it was the academy in Russia. It was always, (laughs) it's so noisy out there. It's it's a lot. (laughs) I just have to acknowledge it for the listener because we, <laughs> we are like in an actively hustling and bustling space right now. Well, you're you're looking at it, so I'm, I'm getting at I'm it. like I'm so hearing a bit, but exactly like I'm because yeah, initially I wasn't sure, but I'm like I'm glad I'm looking at this wall. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> right, right, right. I'm able to project on it's calming. Yeah, it's definitely mm-hmm. calming visually for you, but for me, it's like <laughs> there are people walking by and they're like looking in, which is to, which is to be expected with the space specifically, but. Like yeah, should just, we put on more of a show for them? Like, um, do we need? Maybe to? we should. We should probably like uh, do some uh, calisthenics in here. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just uh, we we could probably just have to get up close on the microphone. So okay. <clears throat> um. So to take it back, yeah. So like, what 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 was the next step from a creative standpoint? Um, like the assumed pass path was uh, art, right? And it was still kind of a traditional art thing. So right. It's like if in Rome. Yeah, but if you're hanging out alone too, like drawing right. and things is like, and your imagination is the thing you always have with you. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty affordable, easy way to stay entertained. That's true, especially when you're a kid too. Yeah. Um, so that worked. And then, yeah, like even, so after we left Italy, um, the U.S. ended up accepting us at a certain point. And then we ended up going to Seattle because we had extended family out there. Got it. Um, oh, we have a couple things in common. We both lived in Oregon for a while. Mm-hmm. And also you went to SVA. So, yeah. So I landed uh, in Seattle um, after Italy. What year, uh, What era was this? What year was this? Early 90s. Early 90s. Oh, what's... Wow, those are probably the, the best the, time for the Seattle. Seattle. Well, the, and then um, several years after we moved down to Oregon, so it was outside of Portland. Yeah. So that... Wow. It was, it was the Portland. It was that art, music. Um, right. Were you big on that grunge scene out in Seattle? Like, I got I, I got I got to Portland just in time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just in time to not be involved in that? Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, but uh, it seems like Seattle's like a, a, an entry point for a lot of uh, uh, European immigrants. Am I wrong in thinking that? There's definitely, yeah, there is a pretty decent-sized community, especially now. Yeah. Um, well, so what was the um, what was the vibe there? And then were there any culture shocks when it came to the states? Oh, so many. I feel like everywhere I went, I was the only immigrant and the only kind of outsider, which is not the worst thing to be. Right. Um, at the elementary school, I we landed here in it was like right after Halloween. It was I think like first week of November or something, and the day after we landed i was in an elementary school and i knew not a word of english oh really uh, i hadn't studied it didn't know that we were even going to be coming out here um and i was the only foreigner there yeah uh there was no esl or any kind of program there so i was just going to school and i would bring a book with me to stay entertained because wow. i couldn't talk to anyone so and eventually i and you spoke Russian at the time. Yeah, just Russian. Um, so yeah, so there's I have very few photos of my childhood, but I have one photo of me in elementary school, like sitting around with my like big Russian book of stories, reading to all the American kids as they're like just gathered around trying to understand what it is that I am. Wow, that's so cool. I, I, in retrospect, that sounds pretty cool to me. It's not bad. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. I feel like there's there's definitely an advantage in. Like when you're the only one, you're a curiosity. Yes. It's not, there's no tensions yet. There's not a threat. Like once there's 
a group, there's a certain like number percentage at right. which you start getting conflict or you start right. getting tension. Like an us versus them gets, type of thing. Exactly, to be a clique. But when it's just you, people are just, you're, yeah. You well, learn how to be the like exotic curiosity you, you entertainment factor. You learn to be the factor. unicorn. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. How would you engage with your classmates? So when did you start opening up within within that world? I don't remember the process. I remember like, I remember initially like the first days of going and not knowing any English and then and then I remember being at a point where I was speaking to everyone and it was fine and I don't think I think it was just I was just that age that it's easy and you just kind of absorb it and again it's that same thing of like leaving when you have no choice in a situation right you're gonna figure it out (laughs) does your brain work multilingually I was actually talking to YL uh uh-huh. Right before you got here, he speaks four languages, which is wild to me. That I, is, yeah. I speak one, like a Philistine, <laughs> but then, yeah, like how does how does the multilingual brain work? Do you still do you, do you dream in Russian ever? Like, what's? I'm curious. Hmm. I mean, my like English is a little more. English is more natural for me to talk in in terms of. My vocabulary is bigger in English. Sure. It, I do kind of see it as it's an easier language for me. Um, but Russian sounds are more comfortable to me. Oh. Like, like if I was to sing or anything, I would want to do it in Russian. If like there's still like there's a weird mouthfeel to English. That's a weird mouthfeel to English. That's <laughs> such an interesting way to describe it. Do you think it's a Russian's a, like a like a like a blanket? Like a like an element of comfort there. I don't, yeah, like I don't know, like so it's yeah, kind of I think Russian sounds, but English vocabulary. Um, but then it ends up it ends up a mix. Like I'm still fairly fluent in both, and I can go back to Russian. It'll take me like a couple days to get <laughs> to pick the accent back up, but then I can blend in. But it's also interesting. Like I really like with all like my other bilingual friends, like anyone that I know that speaks Russian speaks some English as well, sure, um, sure. usually a decent amount. So when we're talking to each other, it ends up a blended language right. where we end up switching from one to another. We'll say three sentences in Russian and one in English. We'll use Russian endings to English words right. and... Um, I kind of love that expanded, the expanded vocabulary and connotations and what you can do when you add the languages instead of just necessarily going to one or the other. Uh, And then just like having that seamless, Mm -hmm. yeah, that seamless back and forth. Yeah. What was the transition from Seattle to Oregon? So that we were just in Seattle for a couple years and then we ended up moving down to Oregon. Um, my you mom. just missed Nirvana. Just, <laughs> just missed uh, Pearl Jam. And then, yeah, I got to the uh, hole and L7 and all, all of those uh, Riot Girl acts uh, in Oregon. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, my mom, uh, we moved down to Oregon because my mom got into a relationship and got so it. we moved down there. But it was crazy because we moved to a tiny, tiny, like, half an hour outside of a tiny town in rural Oregon. Oh, where, where in rural Oregon? Uh, so I went to high school in Newburgh High School. Okay. Which was in the Guinness Book of World Records up until like 1992 for having the most churches per capita in oh, the States. that's interesting. <laughs> it's pretty specific. Yeah, very specific. Um, and then, and we were still like 20 some minutes in a hell outside of that, like between that and a couple other small towns. Got it. Um, so going from living right in the center of St. Petersburg to middle of Rome. Right. To then end up as the foreign kid in rural Oregon <laughs> oh was a pretty, uh, <laughs> yeah, I could, I crazy could adjustment. <laughs> well, what was the vibe back then? I mean, I only lived in Oregon a couple of years ago and I was living in, in the Pearl. So it was basically the, yeah, like basically the, like the Dumbo of, of, of Dumbo. Oregon, yeah. It's like, oh, the Pearl was cool back then. It was still industrial. Yeah, it's that's 
Bear, that's yeah. what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> I only know through stories now. When I was living in the Pearl, it was, you know, just all new apartment buildings, and every apartment was competing to have new tenants. So, you know, I, you know, they were giving away like three months free. Like I didn't, I remember not paying a bill for like months. That, that is kind of Oregon. <laughs> it was very affordable always. Exactly. When I, when I moved back to Brooklyn, it was just like, you know, like a small fortune just to get like suitcase one in the door. So yeah, uh, it was a uh, nice welcome back. But uh, uh, well, yeah, what, what, what was the vibe? What was the vibe out there? Um, so when we first, like I said, like I, it was rural Oregon. So yeah. it was um, a town of like, I think 14,000. Gotcha. Um, Definitely no other Russians there. Right. Um, a lot of churches. It, it was. How was the uh, How was the University of Oregon when you got there? And it, was, it was surprisingly good. It was a really. A lot of green and yellow. Um, a lot of ducks. It was still yeah. It was still Donald Duck. I think it's <laughs> maybe Donald again. I, I haven't. I think it. Is I think Donald, it yeah. reverted. Like for a while, it was like super macho duck. Um, something, yeah. Like masculine duck. Yeah, it was masculine duck. Um, let's let's oh, oh, keep talking. I'm gonna Google masculine duck. It the duck had a name, but I, it had uh, I had a name, but he had like a black lycra suit, and that happened because Phil Knight is from U of O and yep. still supports it heavily. Yep. And he goes to all the football games, and the rivalry, the interstate rivalry, was between. University of Oregon and Oregon State, which was yes. the beaver. Yes, yes. And the mascots would have their like pre-game fight, and <laughs> Donald's costume was too restrictive, and he would lose, and Phil Knight was too embarrassed. Get out! That's that's the truth. So is it this duck? Like it's it's it's, a, it's horrible. Yeah, that, yeah, that duck? yeah. <clears throat> wow. Well, oh, but then like they that. have retro, retro Donald there hanging out. Then he would just tag that guy in. Uh, I, you know, like as, a, as an art student, I did not go to many football games. Sure, sure. <laughs> it looks like a Power Ranger. <laughs> yeah, there's a weird, weird muscly duck uh, just so he could uh, he has win a, those pregame fights. <laughs> he has a he has airbrushed like uh, abs and intercostals <laughs> happening. That's what this that's what's going on with this duck. That's kind of amazing. Uh-huh. And then um, from an installation art space, how do how do you get into into graphic design and and uh, you know, much more a, l- a less tactile space, I suppose. Or I guess it um, all relates. I I still like playing with all of it. Um, so yeah, so I did. Ins- I, so I have an installation art degree um, and a photography degree. And then w- when I moved to New York, I s- I kind of I wanted to do art. I didn't know exactly what. I I was doing a lot of design in undergrad just to as jobs to help pay my bills yeah. and things like that. So I learned it through working. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, when I moved to New York, like I was playing with the art scene and still trying to do art out here, but it was so much harder um, to do it in a place where I didn't have a garage and I didn't have a truck and I didn't have <laughs> all the, you know, luxury of resources and time and space. Um, and then... I was working as a photographer a bit. I took a job, like, and all the interviews I had were also all over the place. Like, I interviewed with an interior design firm that would do, like, Matthew Barney projections and things like that. Yeah. And then I ended up getting a job as a designer at an environmental advocacy organization. And all of this... I don't know. It was just kind of taking advantage of opportunities that were in front of me. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I started doing design and was like, I should understand this typography thing a little more <laughs> if uh, I want to be good at this. Right. And then I got a job doing type design. That seemed like a good way. Like, I kind of, I was always interested in approaching design from like kind of all the peripherals. So, like, I worked at a offset printing firm for a while in Portland, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do type, and this will help. Um, yeah. And then I got stuck in type for... Until now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, the first time we met was at uh, the TDC Type Drives Culture. 
So yeah, that conference was really good. I thought, and I thought your presentation was amazing because like the the breadth of visuals as well as like the expressive uh, visual aspect that you bring to your work, but it felt like so academically sound. I thought it was fascinating and, and amazing. It was really, and also like good energy considering it's the day of like, you know, a lot of talking heads. So thank you for that and educating me. No, it's, yeah, because out here, like I've been known as a type designer for this other thing. I think that was actually the first time that I really showed some of the other stuff that I've been doing to, oh, really? so that felt good. Yeah. Some of the more high energy stuff? Or just some of the early stuff or just some of the different like ways that I've kind of traveled to what I do now, which is still like a weird mix of branding and typography and design and on the edge of like I kind of I love the overlap of art and design yeah like I love the combining the tools of design with the thinking of art yeah um so to me that's kind of a sweet spot that I keep dancing around what were some of the first projects that you that you got out of school and when did you start like really entering like a like a professional space or at least to you I mean, what's a professional space? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think parameter one, probably an exchanging of monies or some sort, some sort of of bartering. I mean, exchange of money I was doing in college. I was working as a photographer. I was working as a web designer. I was working as um, a designer for a lot of places on campus. Right, Um, right, right. And kind of doing, you know, having to support myself. So doing all of the jobs that I could find. Right. Um, And then I was also, I started exhibiting when I was in college as well. Like I was doing, I was showing on campus a lot. I was getting galleries off campus. I got a couple installation grants up in Portland. Um, Oh, wow. So I. You that grant game. Yeah. So I was, yeah. How, How hard is that paperwork? That paperwork is so intense. Um, I was able to do it then and I don't know, it's, I've, I've fallen out of that game. <laughs> I feel like it's, it was one of those things, like it was actually kind of easier for me to do in college and right out of college. Um, but then at a certain point, the grand game doesn't like to see that you're a professional designer. Oh, really? Is that I, true? I don't know. I, that's is it, my is that, sense. I actually, I don't know what's true, but I. <laughs> is, is, is it, is it like a perception of like, you know, you have. You have money coming in for the creation of, of art, as and then they don't like that. Like, what's the what's the POV there? We're gonna cut this part out because I, <laughs> I, I I'm really before I completely start talking out of my ass. Oh no, no worries. Gonna, this podcast is all about talking out gonna, of your ass. Because <laughs> yeah. Oh. When did you start working at Hoffler for your Jones? Um, two thousand seven. Uh, what was the experience there? So what did, what did you, I'm curious to know what you learned there. Well, that was, I mean, that was my first type job. That was the first, my first experience with typography. Really? Yeah. Uh, especially like a, with a highly respected firm. Too. Um, uh, yeah. And anyway, no, at, um, I wasn't going to apply. I applied on a random whim. Um, they messaged me back the next day. I met with them the week after. And I remember like at the interview, I was like, are you guys sure about this? I've never done typography. I have no idea what software you use, like nothing. But if sure, this seems like a good place to learn. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, but it was like, that's also what attracted me to the type scene earlier on. Um, there wasn't really a lot of type schools and a lot of people that came to it are self-taught. Yeah. And there was this beautiful combination of, nerdiness and thirst for knowledge um and a prankster like blazing your own path kind of attitude because it digital typography was a brand new yeah field and people just kind of entered it from a lot of different um points of view and yeah like i remember like my first conversations with uh tobias and jonathan were talking about the random like physical computing art stuff that I did and then they talked I again who knows what I'm gonna say on air um <laughs> I remember something about um them talking about hacking into those the subway platform oh announce the oh, like the yeah. visual oh, the, like oh. runners um to get them to say different things like those little marquees yeah like those led marquees yeah, or whatever yeah yeah, yeah. so that's so cool. 
that idea is cool. I guess I guess now in 2019 that's not so safe anymore. <laughs> but that's really that's interesting because I feel like that at that time the um, that digital typography started already pre-democratized in a way. So you had a mix of professionals that were just that were entering it, but that it probably be, probably had a traditional background, and then you had like newcomers that were entering it that were like non-conformist right from the get and then yeah. and then it all just goes to you know to who knows what platform so like just by nature i think the younger people ended up making more noise because they acclimated it acclimated to it better mm-hmm. and faster you know like i remember there was so much expressive uh sign based type that was like really interesting to me i remember i uh, also like you know like Jessica Hish, of course. I remember Jessica just doing such crazy stuff and being really compelled to that in like 20, 2007, 2008. I well, there's, I mean, generally, like in a lot of our fields, like I teach um, in Barcelona in an interaction design uh, program right now. And one of the things I'm telling my students is that they're studying interaction design. Yeah. And that didn't exist 10 years ago. Right. And everyone that's teaching them is self taught. And you have to kind of have that self like self-learning and lifelong learning thing in you and that's a lot of our field today like it's changing so fast and it's or it has been who knows you know i'm not sure where exactly it's going but how much of your current career do you feel is like you really discovering and falling by by design into something or is it more of a you know an active decision to to go there accidents accidents is yeah. it just like all beautiful it's accidents all beautiful accidents and um all kind of luck and magic and i tend to i get excited about things i haven't done before like that's where my energy is and i feel like things that i've gotten where i haven't done that before has been some of the best places that i've ended up like in terms of my performance i, I know you worked at uh, apple for a little bit mm-hmm. how how specific is uh, is the typographic community there in Cupertino? Because it's like you're just dedicated, like really, truly dedicated to a craft, I presume, right? I mean, the really the interesting thing being out there was that you're working for a completely global audience. Right. Um, the product and the type goes everywhere. So I got into also doing like so. I normally draw Latin, Cyrillic, and Greek. Um, and those are the kind of cliff sets that I'm really comfortable with. But there I ended up doing a lot of other like minority script research and looking to see who else we supported, who else we could support. Um, and that's, and that was pretty interesting. And it's also, you know, like, yeah, you work for a thing like that and you expect, you expect a certain thing. You're like, oh, okay, this is this is how it's done. This is how it's done at this level, and it gives you a certain confidence. Right. Like when when you left that, or like when when you left a, a corporate experience, like I, I presume that you have like a lot of key takeaways. Like, what well, what what were some of the bigger bigger learnings? I mean, I never I never jumped both feet in. Like I I was living in New York before I knew I wanted to be in New York. I didn't want to be out in Cupertino. Right, right. Um, so I was really, I was flattered when they found me. Right. I was curious in collaborating for a while, but I only did it as a contract position and I didn't want to become an employee. Um, probably financially really stupid, but yeah, I, I couldn't, I wanted I to do it. Just, I wanted. I, just fine. I wanted to see what they did and I wanted to get back to New York and get back to a diversity of clients. Uh, and then how did you found Summer Sky and Partners? Happy, blissful accidents like everything else. I I feel like I'm one of the few people that I never really intended to have my own company. I feel yeah. like so many people are like, oh, I want to run my own little design shop. And I'm like, no, I just want to do my thing and I want someone else to handle all the other parts. Um, and then, I don't know, at a certain point, just clients would find me. I... Whenever I would consider doing something else, I would get like a really interesting project or just enough or something else would happen. And then at a certain point, like you string so many of those together and all of a sudden that's... You got a business. Yeah, you've built a business and you've built a life. And I love 
working directly with my clients. I like the diversity of what I get to do, where I get to do it. Yeah. Um, and then it's, you know, with that, you're also, when you're running your own thing, you're constantly learning. You're constantly learning different skills because you're right. wearing all the hats. So that also keeps one entertained. So currently right now in the in the creative community, I feel like there's the, the conversation around identity, identity within your own work and the the personality and like your own idiosyncrasies based around the identity um, that's injected into your work is more meaningful than ever. Like what 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 do you think that you really uh, what meaningful um, elements of your identity do you feel that you inject into your work at all times? That's a hard question. I know that's a that's um, really broad. We're, yeah, we're and really deep. Um, I'm not sure. I feel like a lot of the stuff is easier to see from the outside, or like when you're kind of looking from a distance. Like it's, yeah. I think maybe easier for me to identify what the common thread in other people is. Sure. Than it necessarily is to self-reflect like that. Like there's a certain approach and a certain like problem-solving. Yeah. Thinking that I have. Um, or a kind of, yeah, like a technique for how I approach problems, whether they're branding problems or type problems or design problems or anything else. Um, but I really, I try to get to the heart of the matter in whatever question that I am answering. Yeah. And I do try to have my projects be as different from each other as they can and yeah. to represent the client and represent the mission and represent the question that we're trying to answer. Yeah. So I try to get, remove as much extra Removal out of the, the way as I can, yeah. What do you currently hate <laughs> about the industry? And we can be honest on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's name names, no, just kidding. Like, yeah, like what, what, what are some of the, the pain points? Like, I know I hate a lot of the, a lot of things about this industry. And I, I could talk a million years about that, but what frustrates you? So yeah, so for me, I think like it's kind of the big old planetary, political, global yeah. things that are yeah. concerns. And in terms of the industry, like the industry, I kind of see in an optimistic tone. Like I do see it getting more diverse and I'm yeah, seeing more serious conversations and more res like responsibility taken on for your role in what you do and what you then contribute to. The world. Do you actively pursue that in in the work of the projects, or do you find time for that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, in whatever ways, but yeah, like I do that in terms of who I choose to work with as much as I can, um, especially on the like on the branding side. I think when you're doing branding, you have a lot of responsibility. Yeah, totally. In terms of accurately portraying, and I think. I'm lucky that I get to work with great clients that I believe in. Nice. Um, and it's, yeah, just kind of an honesty to the medium in terms of type design. I look a lot in terms of trying to bring as much global and cultural diversity and bring a lot of those nuanced conversations into it. Um, yeah. I try to, even if you're making like another geometric sans serif or something else, there's still different things you can do and edges you can push and right um i think there's a lot of connotations and a lot of different like regionality and vocabulary that can get folded into a typeface so right. having that be a conversation and having that be conscious decisions is do important you, do you feel that that's relatively new to the industry i feel that that's i feel that's a conversation i didn't even hear two to three years ago but then now it's like everyone's everyone's talking about it which i love um like at the tdc conference I, I loved hearing all of that all day but i remember i remember thinking i was like wow this is something that feels so fresh to be openly discussed i hope so that's that's good if that's your perception what you're hearing i feel like i'm so inside of it right that it's hard for me to necessarily know because there is like there's both happening simultaneously like on one hand there's more awareness and there is this kind of opening up in terms of what's good design yeah. and what's not and how do you evaluate it 
um, and how open you can be with it. Right. Um, but at the same time, we, the visual climate is getting more and more monocultural simultaneously, like in oh, terms wait, of what like... What do you mean by that? Oh, God, how much trouble do I want to get myself into? <laughs> um, I Let's mean... Get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> How many identical yeah. looking sans serif uh, oh, typefaces yeah. have you seen released oh, uh, man. I recently? Was, I was and... working with a couple of them this morning. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I always feel that going into the space of like Swiss design, and I, I have a great appreciation for Swiss design. You know what I mean? Especially coming from MTV, <laughs> where there's a great history of Swiss design there. Mm -hmm. But for me, the idea that we don't all speak the same language, literally, but also visually speaking, that we don't all speak the same language, and there are different nuanced aesthetic elements that can, you know, speak to individualism as well as to the multiculturalism of, uh, you know, a great melting pot world. It's I'm always looking for something that can give me just a little bit more, a little bit more specificity, or at least, you know, professionally and personally. I don't know if you're the same way. Yes, exactly. No, I think we're um, on similar sides of that. And I've heard uh, a little bit of your rants about the grid, which I will <laughs> I will definitely have to um, pry into a lot more later oh, at some point. Yeah. The uh, toxic grid. <laughs> it is a toxic grid because it, it makes people, it makes you think that there's only one way to do it. And it's so... It's literally all right angles, but it's a it's a tool. Sorry, I'm just gonna get get on a high horse now. <laughs> but it, it, it people use it as a tool for control, but I think you can actually use it as a tool for democracy and 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 whatever the input is within the grid. It's it it makes puts everything on an equal. So there there's a low brow way to think about it, where it's just, let's say content. So like for anyone who isn't like you know a type nerd, right? Like you can a, a cat video theoretically could be the same weight or the same equally as the godfather movie you know so if like the grid could could support both of those two pieces of content they're fine and they're both one-to-one -one. so if it if an if a, an alien let's say from were uh from mars were to come down to earth and then have no experience with whatever content was in this grid of no you know uh you know thought about like what great cinema was like like the godfather um, you know, they could probably, they could still see a cat video, be equally as moved, and they see the Godfather be equally as moved. And that's, to me, what the grid could be, where you can have two great pieces of communication that aren't restricted by traditional thoughts of aesthetic beauty. Uh, or most people are just like, I'll just slide it in here and just make sure that your, um, your proportions are correct. But the proportions are based in, the proportions are also subjective. Absolutely. And politic and like to me like and political and tied to a place and tied to a style of thinking yeah. and I kinda I love the ugly design, brutalist, anti design. Totally. Um, as a conversation and to me like and I love uh like to me the tensions and the conversations and how things flow into one after another or from different places and how you fold personal history in is where it gets really fascinating yeah how, how important do you think disruption is in the industry right now well it depends on how important disruption is uh in the world and in politics <laughs> and in the planet right now right. like right like yeah. design should like does mirror the greater conversation it and it is kind of a microcosm of that in a way to articulate it what do you feel is the the greater the high level responsibility of design do you, do you believe in something like that apart from from communication well i mean the reason we're using design for that is that it folds in a lot more communication like you're not just saying show up to this place at this time you're saying show up to this place at this time and we believe in Swiss design and we follow this rational modernist or, you know, whatever else. Like yeah. the point of design is that you're folding so many opinions and connotations and histories and beliefs and you're condensing it to one layer. So you, I do think we are responsible for what we fold in there what we align 
what messaging we align to other messaging, what connotations we kind of fold in, and that we are consciously responsible for the mess for the final delivery of the message. Yeah. Is uh for you teach at Harbor Space. Yeah. Right? What do you impress upon your students there and, and for the future generation um, in order to make them greater communicators and and also greater design thinkers? Um, I wanna impress a certain confidence and a sense of agency. I want them to be responsible for the work they touch and I want them to be aware of everything they're putting into it um, and conscientious of what that final effect is. And so to me, like, yeah, it's kind of through, I mean, I think so much of teaching is showing people they already know. Mm. What, is, they what, already is, what do you have. mean by that? Um, that they already know or they have a starting like point? We, yeah, like we all understand visual culture. Like if, if you're seeing things, then you've been seeing things for a really long time. Like we know how to read it. Like right. we're learning how to, like it takes a while and practice to learn how to communicate it out, but right. we all know how to read it. How do you articulate it and how do you pull it apart? And so you can then put it back into, that was not a sentence, was it? <laughs> that was a good, no, that was, that makes sense. The, it fell off. It fell off a cliff. No, happens. it was it was good. <laughs> you you winked at me, and then you, <laughs> then I was distracted. I was like, okay, should I read the? How do I understand the wink? <laughs> <laughs> that we're we're Thelma and Louise in this, and um... <laughs> oh my god. So uh, so while we're winding down, like mm -hmm. uh, what uh, what projects are you working on? What do you, what's coming up for you? Like what what's what's next for Ksenia Samarskaya? Also, my, tell me if I'm butchering your name, please. Oh, I butcher my name all the time. I pronounce it, because um, I've learned to pronounce it the Americanized way. But no, but uh, sometimes I'll be at, like, I remember going to a party in the Lower East Side, and there was, like, Russians on one side of the balcony, and then Americans, and I was used to introducing myself to the Americans, and then I walk over to the Russian side, and they didn't, they couldn't get what my name was, because it's pronounced so differently. Oh, what, what um, is the Russian pronunciation? I mean, it'd be more like Senia. Senia. Um, but also in Russia, you don't, a full name is really formal. Like no oh. Russian, if they got my name, would ever repeat it or use it because that's the formal name. So like Russian, like, you know how if you read a Russian novel, it gets really confusing because you can't follow who is who. Because sure. every name comes with like a dozen coded nicknames that all... That are just like loose descriptors. Yeah, but that all kind of tie back to that name. Gotcha. So in Russian, you never use a full name anyway. So to me, it's like a weird, weird little <laughs> marker that I just like, you know. Like, leave, who does like, that? It's like a coat. Like you leave it at the door. <laughs> you like, I walked in here with it. That's and a great metaphor. <laughs> gotcha. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what's coming up next for you? I always... Um, keep so many things up in the air that it takes me a while to even try to figure it out. Um, I mean, there's, you know, some branding projects. Yep. Uh, um, doing like a small little, small little project for a friend uh, who's starting the Earth Species Project. Uh, so they want to use artificial intelligence um, to try to communicate with animals Whoa. the way that you can like the way that you can like map a mind to language for humans and kind of applying applying that to build some kind of translation and lexicon wow. I don't know exactly where they're at with it but I'm fascinated by that premise yeah that sounds fascinating um okay so I I like mean, no big deal, just dropping that little mind, <laughs> that little brain bomb. I'm like, whoa, now, I mean, that, I'm, now I'm thinking about it. That's the fun part of being a designer and being a brand designer is you get to collaborate with all these people and learn about their right. businesses and get to play your part and get to hang out. Um, I mean, there's, there's always like so many unfinished typefaces that... <laughs> I could have released years ago and then I always have like all these projects that are like in 
eternal pre-release date um, that I should get to a release date. Um, it's a lot of a lot of non-disclosure projects. Gotcha. There's some yeah, some other type bases for clients in the works. Um, dealing more with education. Uh, so initially, I started teaching a typography course and a type design course. Yeah. At Harbor, and then um, I saw that the students were really worried about how to navigate the job scene, how to navigate life after, yeah. um, where to go, what to do. So I started, um, so I proposed doing a course on kind of entrepreneurship, thinking um, told, uh, titled Manufacturing Luck. Okay. So I put together a syllabi for that. Wow. Um, so that's been kind of fun that's to think name. about. Um, that's actually the name of a good book. If you ever turn that into <laughs> a, into like a like a short form, you know, bathroom reading book, you probably could actually. There's, I mean, there's a lot of interesting, like, because it's all stuff that we end up doing that's not actually designed. But I'm like, wait, you can talk about it and you can codify it. And right. How would you kind of unpack that? Um, I'm talking to a couple friends about collaborating on uh, creating a syllabus for like surviving collapse hmm. um, that's a little personal personal aside that also like I kind of I'm fascinated now with the form of the syllabus and wow. kind of with the form of like okay if I wanted an entry into learning about this thing yeah where would I start and then where would I go from there that's a, a, a fascinating way to think about writing about something that's a new concept for the individual. Like what's there to read? What are the practices? Who to talk? You know, what right. are some kind of frameworks for how to think about this thing? Right. Um, and then, yeah, Harbor Space is opening a new campus in Bangkok uh, wow. in the fall. So I'm going to be out there helping them open it and teach wow. us out there. That's wild. Uh, Have so you spent a lot of time in Asia before? I've spent some, not a lot, and I've never been to Thailand, so that's gonna be that's gonna be a first. Damn, that sounds super excited. exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> you're gonna want to make sure that you're near air conditioning. <laughs> I've heard, yes. I've heard it's very hot out there. Uh, the Russian in me is not quite heat conditioned. <laughs> I like my snow, and I like my. Like, yep, seasons are, uh, mm -hmm. I do appreciate a good season. Yes. So what, what would you want to say to uh, the young designers that, that might be looking up to you as well as like want to just kind of figure out how to fall into some beautiful accidents themselves? Follow the thing that you're passionate about. Our, our industry is constantly changing. Our careers are constantly changing. Um, there's no necessarily right answers. And a lot of the really good opportunities are kind of, ahead of the curve and in these new things so if there's something you're excited doing just learn as much as you can and make it happen it's all possible and uh, where can our listeners find you well the fact that I have a hard to pronounce and hard to spell name <laughs> means that I'm very easy to search so I'm just uh, Samarska everywhere and one can one can find me there hit the Googles <laughs> All right. Thank yeah. you so much for having me here. This is, I feel like we've opened up, like we could have so many more conversations from here without even overlapping. Like I have so many things I want to ask you now oh, and that I oh, feel like. Oh, go right like, ahead, please. No, I mean, I want to, I want to talk to you about, yeah, the grid more. I want to talk about oh, politics. Yeah. I feel like yeah. that, you know, like even just weather conversations and how climate, how things affect in different places. Like, oh, yeah. Well, we should, mm. we should grab a beer one day. We should grab, grab a beer, grab Grab wine, make sure that there's like a good uh, uh, meat and cheese situation within close reaching proximity, <laughs> and then uh -huh. we, can, we can just chat it up. It's not too hot, not too <laughs> rainy. Ksenia, thank you so much. Thank you. So I want to thank Ksenia for stopping by over at the listening party space over at Canal Street Market. That was a great conversation. And you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts. Please rate us and uh, give us a review. That really does help. Also, it spreads a good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes on Instagram. We are at firstgenburden. And you can find me, your host, Rich2, at Rich underscore T-U on the social medias. 
Again, thanks to Listening Party and Canal Street Market. Follow them at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Thanks to Desjen for their support. Thank you for checking out Season 4, First Gen Burden. And also, if you have the time and the heart, check out actblue.com backslash donate backslash MS Raids if you want to contribute to the to the separated families because of the ice raids in Mississippi. It, it'll, it'll go a long way, and I'm sure that uh, they could use your help. So come back next week, episode 30 of First Gen Burden. It's kind of wild. can't believe I've already done 30 of these things. Originally, I was only going to do 12, but yet here we are. So come back next week, dropping every Monday. Be safe. Bye.